if you get this right, you do enhance the value of your brands and your customers and your workforce, that's going to show up in higher value of the firm and ultimately create shareholder value, which is what every CFO is trying to do. I think that's fundamentally what companies need to start thinking about. How do their frameworks, their decision frameworks, their investment priority frameworks take account of or not these intangible attributes? That's Andreas Ohl, a partner in PwC's national office. And Aaron Gilcrest, PwC's global valuation leader. This is Heather Horn, and thanks for joining me for the next episode of our Forecast 2021 podcast miniseries. The momentum behind ESG issues is powerful, and over the last few weeks, we've attempted to deconstruct each element. Today, we conclude our in-depth look by focusing on the S and how companies are rebalancing their strategies to not only address societal challenges, but also build measurement frameworks to help prioritize and report on these initiatives. Aaron and Andreas, thank you so much for joining me today for this third part of our three-part series on ESG, focusing in on the social aspect. And I think there's a somewhat misconception out there that focusing on social is only about doing good. And I think here today in our conversation, you guys are also going to help our listeners understand that it can also be good for your company, as well as helping your various stakeholders. So looking forward to getting into it. And Andreas, maybe just to kick things off, why do you think the S is important to highlight? Yeah, so the, the, there's a bit of a competition, I guess, amongst the letters. So the E, you know, rightly gets a lot of the attention just because climate risks are, are, are real and it's a major challenge and it's in the news every day. But, you know, look, the reality is there's other societal challenges that are uh, at work here. And, uh, you know, if you go through a few examples of, and these are all things that are also in the news, right? So we have income inequality is, is increasingly widening the gap between the haves and have nots. We have technology disruption that's really affecting the, uh, the, the job markets, requiring reskilling on the part of the workforce and a focus on um, lifelong continuing education. We have in the political arena, the whole concept that globalization is now being viewed with greater concern just because it's having real, real impacts on local communities that maybe Globalization is good in the aggregate, but in the at the micro level, it can present some real challenges. Getting diversity and inclusion right is is now a, a C-suite issue as a uh, companies feel they have some responsibility for uh, helping society tackle racial disparity. And then finally, the area of data privacy and security. We've had a lot of breaches and hacks amongst uh, amongst large companies in the last few years, and again, that makes its way into the media. So all of these things are big issues. They're very consequential, not just to society, but to companies. And you know, frankly, you can make an argument that for some companies, these are more impactful to them than uh, the environmental challenges that get all the, uh, all the headlines. So then Aaron, with that backdrop, if you're listening, what's sort of the key takeaway that we're hoping people get from this podcast? Yeah, sure. Andreas is highlighting some really significant societal challenges. And these are the challenges that are, in fact, the S of ESG. They are creating, in our, our view, some serious headwinds for corporations and have the real potential to lead to value destruction in the corporate enterprise. So, you know, fundamentally, I think we'd offer that companies do need to focus at this stage on 
reorienting, rebalancing their strategy and their capital allocation decision-making to take better account of these issues, to think about how to properly identify and then ultimately value programs that are aimed at addressing uh, S issues in ESG. So then, Aaron, with that, can you tell me some more about how companies could think about this? Yeah, sure. If you dive a little bit deeper, just sort of breaking it into those two themes, identification and value. What I'd offer on the identification side is companies for years now, in our view, have been over-indexed on efficiency, operational effectiveness as sort of the mantra for strategy. Um, And there's certainly plenty of reasons why that's a logical thing for companies to be focused on in terms of using capital efficiently. But I'd offer it's not strategy. It's not, in fact, a path to creating sustainable, long-term competitive advantage in the marketplace. Um, And so as you think about what does create long-term sustainable competitive advantage in the marketplace, it's really resilient capital. It's strong foundational capital assets that allow an opportunity for companies to grow, to take advantage of growth opportunities, um, and to survive disruption, not just disruption from big systemic events like COVID, but disruption from competition, plain and simple. Well, capital assets require investment. So reorienting and rebalancing, that point about rebalancing is really one of recognizing that efficiency has a role to play, but so too does investment in capital assets uh, that afford us an opportunity to grow. So questions like how does a customer base delighted by the experience we give it um, help us grow? How does a long-term and agile workforce, a well-trained one with a lot of institutional knowledge because they've worked for us for many years, help us grow or respond to growth opportunities? How does a diverse culture, uh, a diverse thinking environment um, lead to better innovation in our business model and ultimately allow us to grow? So central point one would be really about that identification. How do we identify these sorts of opportunities to build more resilient capital and in doing so tackle some of these big societal challenges? The second leg, the sort of value piece is a real challenge for our clients uh, as we talk to companies about these issues. Building resiliency requires investment and it's that's the rub. It's the opposite of, of efficiency because it requires us to spend money. It's not about saving dollars. Um, and it therefore for many CFOs looks like value destruction, we'd offer that's a quantification challenge, that there's a challenge here with proper measurement of ROI that needs to be addressed if we're going to do this in a worthwhile way, specifically that many of these programs have have very intangible sort of oriented attributes. So things that are not easy to put dollars to, but are central to the question of what is the ROI on an investment in my workforce or my customer base, et cetera. So the quantification challenge is central point two would be recognize that the ROI requires that you start to think about measurement of these intangibles and that there are methodologies for doing that. Yeah, that's right, Aaron. I would just maybe elaborate on that a little bit that you know, really one of the ways that you make this more tangible, no pun intended, is that you really have to think about it in terms of the increase in value that that you're generating through taking these actions will show up in increasing value of your portfolio of intangible assets, such as the customer relationships or your workforce or your brand portfolio. The other thing, maybe just listening to your discussion here that strikes me, and this is something you read about all the time, that that somehow this is incompatible with enterprise value creation or capitalism. And it's it's really not. I mean, if if you get this right um, and you, you do enhance the value of your brands and your customers and your workforce, that's going to show up in higher value of the firm and ultimately create shareholder value, which is what every uh, CFO is trying to do. 
Yeah. And I guess, Andreas, I want to ask a follow on question to that because, you know, when I spoke to Casey Herman and Ron Kinghorn, you know, the environmental or our net zero podcast last week, one of the things we talked about was that, you know, traditionally green investments have been done because of a regulatory purpose or because there's some outside factor forcing you to make those investments. But now what they talked about on the podcast was that they're actually good investments, like they do have a good ROI. And it sounds like what the two of you are saying is that, you know, in some cases, maybe people are, say, implementing different programs to address some of these issues because of maybe outside factor. But in fact, it is going to help you grow value for the organization. Yeah, that, that's right. I think that's the central argument here. Okay, so then, Andreas, with that in mind and saying this is actually good for the corporation, what should the C-suite be doing to make this a priority? Yeah, so I think there's a couple things that we observe in practice that are helpful. So one one is certainly measurement. You want you want to measure the value creation and not leave it as some philosophical qualitative thing that, you know, maybe there's some real question as to whether it's it's real. So the more specific you can get with quantification, the uh, the better. I think you also want to make sure that it makes its way into goals as far down in the organization as you can, such that doing the right things on some of these metrics are going to translate into real compensation effects. Aaron touched on this earlier, but because it involves investment, you have to make sure you have a capital allocation process that's robust that can really capture these benefits. And again, in as quantitative a way as possible, you don't want a situation where everyone's pet project is suddenly has a an E and S or a G benefit that's impossible to measure that is going to put it on the top of the priority list. So you really need to have discipline still in your capital allocation process. Maybe the other thing just to think about is obviously for all of this to be credible, you really need investors to buy in. And a key element of that is there has to be reporting that, again, is is robust, but also draws a direct line for the investors between the activities you're undertaking and how that links to your strategy to create value. That process needs to be credible in order for investors to buy in that this is a good use of the company's time and and capital. So maybe to follow on that question, and Andreas, you also mentioned capital allocation. Aaron, if I go back to you, I know this is something you've been looking at, is how these types of, I'll use the word, intangible items factor in if I'm a CFO and I'm making capital allocation decisions. So how do I think about that? Yeah, it's the core critical question, really, for kind of the linkage that Andreas is describing. The CFO's role is very central to that linkage in terms of describing how strategy ultimately drives core value drivers and then ultimately value for the enterprise. And that's what's in the reporting side of it. There's no one solution in here. I will say the quantification challenge, as I noted earlier, is a real one. Uh, And there are lots of different methodologies for attacking it, some that are relatively simple, some that are relatively complex. On the simplest level, fundamentally thinking about uh, decision-making by by taking account of the attributes is really just kind of an asset-by-asset conversation. So if you think about it just by way of simple example, the value of a program designed to engage my employees more directly, upskill them, whatever it may be, 
Well, I can measure value consequences in one way by thinking about less turnover of my employee base. So to Andreas's point earlier, if my employees are sticking around longer, I'm avoiding a certain amount of cost to go hire new people than train them. So that directly ties into a value consequence I can measure. Similarly, if I'm investing in my customer base in some tangible way, the central attribute in a customer asset is really attrition. If I can hold on to customers longer than I otherwise would as a function of that investment, I can very discreetly measure the value of that program. But those are harder to quantify things, but not by any means impossible. So that's kind of the core idea. Again, the methodologies have their range from very simple, as I just described, to much more complicated approaches that are useful in certain circumstances. And then, Aaron, do you see companies, Andreas made the comment that it's almost like everyone has their pet project that's either the E, the S, or the G. And do you see companies that as soon as you put one of those labels on it, it's kind of that investment's moving ahead in the line? Or are you seeing companies put this type of discipline that you're talking about? Like, what's your experience in practice? It's an excellent question and a really important one for getting this right. And what I mean by that is absent a unifying measure, absent uh, a disciplined approach to ranking and prioritizing things through a unifying measure, in our view, value, you end up with pet projects sort of political grandstanding. So I want to have my project funded. You want to have your project funded. How do we make that decision without a disciplined value maximizing approach? The answer right now in many environments, unfortunately, is there's no real way to know. It's simply a function of who wins the political argument. Um, we think that's a recipe ultimately for disaster inside many corporations because you're not going to get just quite logically the best decisions made uh, without that unifying measure. Yeah, and and again, if you don't have that that process in place in the organization, it's going to come through in the communications, and the CFO is going to be central to driving those communications with key constituents. We we all know that the rating agencies play a, a, a pretty substantial role here with these uh, ESG ratings that drive whether a company is ESG good or not. And uh, that drives what investment portfolios the company's uh, securities might land in. It'll be pretty transparent to people if that process is not in place internally around capital allocation discipline when they try to communicate how they're creating value through ESG initiatives to the various stakeholders. It seems like if you're dealing with something like, let's talk about upskilling your workforce, and that's something that's close to all of us, right? Because PwC went through its own digital upskilling. And so I'm the person that's trying to put this investment forth. I think it's important, but there isn't a clear number to choose to say, I'm going to quantify that this is going to have XYZ benefit. And it does at least superficially seem more qualitative. So how do you translate from those more qualitative benefits to a model or some other more quantifiable analysis? I think that's fundamentally what we're offering clients need their company to start thinking about is they need to start thinking about how do their frameworks, their decision frameworks, their investment priority frameworks take account of or not these intangible attributes? Um, the short answer is uh, you just have to do it. There has to be a process by which you you, you filter investment choices through a, a framework that allows you to do it. It's, it's interesting, you know, the, the value of public companies today, of any company today, uh, are substantially more in intangible value than it was, let's say, 50 years ago. Uh, and most of the decision-making frameworks we use in corporate environments 
in many ways are rooted in 50 year ago science. And so it's very sort of dollars and cents, which makes a lot of sense, of course, but they've not evolved as much as we think they should or could to take more account of these intangible attributes. And and Heather, I, I might add that, look, people have been doing this to some extent related to some types of R&D projects for a long time, where you have to do scenario analysis. And part of what that scenario analysis does is it tries to capture some of these other benefits of a project besides just the, you know, the net present value of cash flows. It tries to capture perhaps some of the uh, brand enhancing benefits if you invest in, say, a drug that may not generate a lot of top line sales, but might uh, do a lot for the company's reputation in the marketplace because it's helpful for a tropical illness that maybe affects a small portion of the world's population. But for that small portion, it's uh, it's really valuable. So it's getting that quantitative discipline in there and not just saying, I'm going to approve the project because someone has a qualitative story. So if you go back to workforce, you know, what is the key metric? Is it that this investment is going to yield improved turnover statistics by how much? And what's the real benefit of improved turnover? Is it just that we have lower recruiting costs? Or is it, as Aaron said, that if you have tenured experienced employees with a lot of intellectual capital, that they will be more efficient, they will be better at managing your clients, they will be better at creating value through uh, generating. Um, new ideas that will resonate in the marketplace. But really trying to put numbers on this to the greatest extent possible is really what's key. And I might add that, you know, in the the world of uh, EVA that some companies adopted 10, 20 years ago, we were doing some of this where we were trying to find qualitative activities that employees perform inside a company and translating those back into which ones created value and then finding ways to measure that and reward that behavior. This is very similar to that exercise. We're just applying it to a different set of metrics. It's the right point that historical experience is useful for today. I would offer, it's actually a question we get from our clients is, how is this different? You know, we've, we've seen this story before. And why is this any different? It didn't really go where we thought it would 10 years ago. Look, I don't, I don't think it takes much to see that the writing's on the wall here. The momentum behind this ESNG is significant, and I would offer significantly more intense than it was 10 years ago. And it's coming, you mentioned something earlier, Heather, uh, around regulators can drive some different behaviors in corporations. Of course, that's always been true. But I would offer that today what we're seeing is massive push from the investing community with significant amounts of money. Uh, passing through money manager hands that are going through ESG investment frameworks, i.e. they're taking specific account of how ESG factors may influence the value of a company. And then importantly, and maybe most critically, real momentum and push from consumers and from social media and from employees who want their companies to be out on front on some of these social issues, even more so in some cases, than environmental ones. So companies are feeling this acutely from lots of quarters. And I maybe offer one incremental point that I, I should have mentioned earlier, and it gets a little bit at the regulator side of this as well. A big chunk of the issues here have historically felt to companies like externalities, things that are sort of outside the perimeter of the business. We certainly have concern for folks that have been laid off uh, and are unemployed, but 
you know, I have my company and I have my employees. And what is that ultimately to me as a business leader? Well, ultimately today, it's a much more consequential thing because the consequence of those layoffs is coming back to companies in a way that is much more tangible. Those externalities are being internalized, whether they like it or not, uh, by these factors, by these forces. And so that's another sort of impetus, I think, for companies to really start to get these things more front and center. So Aaron, listening to what you just said, I had made myself a note. You had earlier mentioned value destruction, and I wanted to ask you how it could do that. But I think it's the opposite of what you just said. So basically, if instead of consumers and employees and others getting behind a company, instead, they may go against a company if you don't demonstrate these good behaviors. Is that a fair, quick summary? I think that's right. It's how we started this conversation. If we if we leave these issues unattended with the amount of pressure coming from all quarters, uh, we think there's real risk to corporate value uh, as consequence of ignoring some of these issues. Okay. And then Andreas, one last question for you before we get to the end is I know you deal with a lot with multinationals and clearly a lot of this, you know, we're not very isolated now. We're definitely clearly all one globe. So what are the challenges in a multinational company with dealing with some of these types of issues? Yeah. And, I, and again, I think this is one of these areas, Heather, where there is a difference between the ES and the G. So if you think about the E, where there seems to be growing global consensus towards this concept of, uh, of, of net zero that cuts across countries. But if you look at the S, I, I think that's much more influenced by local situations and not just regulations, but just cultural norms and, and the like will really dictate, you know, what companies can do in some of these uh, some of these S areas. Maybe a challenge for companies that are global in their footprint that they may need to move at different speeds in different uh, jurisdictions, but it still comes back to the same general principle that uh, wherever you can, you want to focus on this because it is value enhancing. So Andreas, when you were talking, you made the point that for, from a social perspective, some of what you do may be influenced on where as a company you're located, where in the world. And one of the things I was thought of when you mentioned that is, you know, we've seen so many examples where companies have had supply chains and are getting inputs from other parts of the world and, you know, have really had a negative impact on their brand because of something happening, for example, in their supply chain. So I think the only thing I'd add to what you said is that in addition to considering these programs sort of directly with your employees and in your headquarters is also thinking about suppliers and others. And, I don't want to start this conversation, but we've also even talked about the point of employees versus contractors and you know how you think about those. Like it's it could go beyond what you really call an employee part of your company. So just you know, this could have a more expansive definition, something to consider. Yeah, I would think about it as the company is part of an ecosystem, right? And it only functions if all the pieces are healthy. All right. So then Gentlemen, just to wrap things up, you know, we've had, obviously, I've, this is the third of our series of podcasts on ESNG. And as you think about the social aspects of it, you've mentioned environmental and governance a few times here, but anything specific that you just highlight as sort of a, a wrap up? Yeah, maybe I'll start, Heather, if you sort of look forward in time. These are big, substantial, structural, societal challenges. As a citizen of the world, I sure hope we've started to tackle some of their more in more concrete 
ways. And, and I do think companies have a role to play in that. And certainly uh, companies are feeling the pressure that perhaps they have to you know, rethink what their role is in addressing those challenges. What hopefully people are getting from this conversation today is, although we think companies have a role to play, that we want them to be disciplined and careful about that role in a way that is still focused on value maximization for the enterprise and ultimately for, for their shareholders. Um, that building resilient assets is part and parcel of what they do every day anyway, uh, but being more thoughtful about how they do that in ways that um, take account of some of these big challenges is a perfectly good use of their time uh, and can lead to better outcomes for them and for society at large. Yeah, and I would just add, you know, we've touched on a few times intangible assets and, you know, Aaron made the point earlier about how the economy has changed. And if you if you think about it, if you had gotten something like the S and ESG wrong 20 years ago, would it really impact the value of your plant or your real estate? Probably not. But when the majority of your value as an enterprise sits in things like brands, customer relationships, workforce assets, it's very easy to see how if you get this wrong, it can really, to your earlier point, destroy some value. But if you get it right, you can really enhance the value of the uh, of the enterprise. And so I think that's a useful lens to apply to this. All right. Well, Andreas, I think that's a very positive note for us to leave things on. Thanks both for joining me today. Thanks. Thank you. If you haven't already listened to the episodes from the last two weeks covering governance and net zero, there are links to each of those episodes in today's show notes. It's a great bundle of information, so I hope you check it out. Join me back here every Tuesday and Thursday for new podcast episodes. Next Tuesday, we have a new revenue-related episode for you. So join me back here when we talk about variable consideration. So that you never miss an episode of any of our audio content, subscribe to the PwC Accounting Podcast Series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.